This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our author, Paul C. Reddington, has written a book titled Mary, Mother of God. Now, that could be a meaning that's ambiguous or specific. Uh, let's talk with Paul and find out what he means by Mary, the Mother of God. Paul, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Now, your, your, your title does not refer to the Creator, God, it refers to Jesus Christ. Is that uh, a, a correct evaluation of what the title means? Well, I'm Catholic, and we believe that Jesus Christ is God. Well, There's yes. three people and one God. But uh, your three. your reference is primarily to, to the life and uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ, though, correct? Yes, all the way through. Everything about Mary is not about Mary. It's about Christ. Now, Mary in the story shows her trust in God in every aspect of her life, completely, and especially in raising his son. You have posed some very fascinating questions in your book. Uh, you have taken on the, not the personality of Mary, but uh, taken on some of the questions that Mary must have had as she was raising a child. What, what would you say is the foremost question that probably came to Mary after she was uh, pronounced to be the mother of Jesus? Well, the first question that came into her mind was why God chose her to be the mother of his son. And that caused her great distress that the responsibility, as I said in the, uh, the back of the book, the awesome and daunting responsibility of raising Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is also God himself. Very daunting task. Uh, you also, I don't know whether abortion was a, uh, a possibility back then, but that uh, oh, yes. because she was unmarried, that would have been a, a, a consideration by some in that uh, in that uh, community. She never thought of abortion. Not once. The thought never entered her mind. And as far as abortion goes, in the chapter of the visitation. I put the words into Anne's mouth, explaining that God respects all life. We call them zygotes and uh, fetuses. They are nothing but euphemisms for life, the same as a baby, an infant, middle-aged, old age. They are all euphemisms for life itself. And God respects all life from conception to the grave, and that's the point she was making. Absolutely. And uh, this is 114 pages, not a long read. Paul, as you had the uh, passion to, to write this story and share your insight, when did that begin? When did the, uh, the desire to write the book come about, and how long did it take to complete? Well, the desire was just when I had started it. I sat down. 
I have always had great devotion to Our Lady, and who brings us closer to Christ. And in the scriptures, there's only a few uh, mentions of Mary. It never really gets into her life. And I wondered what she went through, as many of my readers have found out. So I started to write it for myself and for my children, and just for a few people I'd pass it on to. And in talking to Julius at Arthur House, he convinced me I ought to write, make it into a book and have it published. And it took me close to a year, a little over 10 months. Your printing in this is a little larger print than typical, and you have some sketches, some uh, photo, not photographs, but some sketches, some art renderings in here. Was your audience, did you feel like it would appeal to a younger audience as well as an older audience? Yes, in fact, Julius and I were just talking about that on the uh, reducing it and putting in colored pictures for children. And I'll be giving it some thought in the next few months. But the pictures are all of my design. I told the artist exactly what I wanted. And each picture, really, if the people look at them, it tells the story of the script. You also tell the story of Zachariah and uh, his wife, Elizabeth, Zachariah, was uh, it was pronounced that uh, he would have a child, and he was old in years and thought it was foolishness and lost his voice. And uh, then he, uh, when, they, when he finally was asked, what is the name of the boy you're going to have, he said his name is John, and he began to speak. And in your paragraph here, you, na- you mentioned that at that moment he was able to speak and started praising God, and foretelling the life of his son was to have as a prophet of God. The neighbors were surprised, but Mary quietly smiled. After the yeah. crowd had left, Marion and, and Zachariah and Elizabeth hugged and said their goodbyes. And you uh, make a quotation that is one, of course, fictionalized, but also probably one that could have taken place. I thank God the morning sickness, Mary said. And they all laughed at that. I wanted to show that she was a normal woman all the way through. Uh, having watched my wife, God bless her, uh, raising our children. 12 of them, and what she went through, and I uh, just put Mary in the same place. The uh, responsibility of raising God's son. And of course, no one knew except the immediate family, Joseph, uh, Anne, and Joachim, and Elizabeth, and uh, Zachariah that he, she was raising God. You carried the story not just from the birth, or not just the, the birth incidences that happened in Mary's life, but also to the cross. What was your, yeah. what was your presumption there? What was your uh, feeling about Mary's response to the cross? I didn't get into it the way I really wanted to. I wanted to keep it short and pertinent information that she was, as I mentioned, uh, the sword of Simeon that he foretold would uh, pierce her heart. At the foot of the cross, she felt it not only in her heart, 
but all through her very being, every fiber of her being. I've she heard... had lost her son. Yes. Jesus Christ. I've also she heard... Was... I'm sorry, I've also heard it uh, discussed by some who have observed the uh, the history uh, around the cross. And for those who doubt the uh, veracity of what happened there, if Jesus was the Son of God, which uh, we believe, many believe, uh, Mary could have stood up and said, you know, he's delusional. He uh, he was He was just imagining he was someone of importance, but she never did, and there's no account of that. She must have also believed that he was the Son of God. Most definitely. She trusted him as God and as a man. You know, Jesus didn't realize he was God, except through the progression of Mary raising him as a child into his manhood. This is what God had wanted. This is why I say that she believed everything that Jesus told her. And, of course, she told him as a child, raising him and leading him towards God, because at that time he didn't realize his divinity. What do you want readers to take away from this, besides the personal feeling and personal insight into Mary and her life? I want them to grow closer to Mary and thereby become closer to Christ himself. This is what Mary is. She's an advocate for all of mankind. She leads people through her example to Jesus himself. Describe for my listeners how you perceive the finished product of what you have written. How would you describe that to them and get them interested in getting their own personal copy of Mary, Mother of God? Well, again, on the explanation of the back cover, that these are my own interpretations of what Mary's life was like. Complete devotion and trust in God and in Jesus. She trained him as a child until he grew into manhood and started to work on his own, thinking that he was uh, doing God's work, not realizing at the time that he himself was God. That realization came later, and I just slowly brought it to the fore. The people I've talked to who have read the book uh, feel the same way, that uh, this is all about Christ again. Were there any challenges, Paul, in getting this uh, idea, getting the concepts down on paper and getting it to press? (laughs) Most definitely. If you talk to Julius, I had completed uh, the entire story and sent it to him. And the next day, I called him and told him, rip it all up, that I was going to start all over again. Uh, you're a courageous guy to do that. <laughs> has this has this story of personal devotion and uh, your insight, has it given you the interest in maybe doing a sequel to this one? Uh, Julius and I were just talking about it, about writing uh, a children's book based on the same storyline. 
but uh, try to shorten it a little bit and have them colored pictures instead of just the uh, the black and white drawings. And I'm seriously considering it. I told them I'd be thinking about it, and I wouldn't get into it completely for about another three or four months. Going to take uh, it easy and recuperate from uh, getting this one published. Yes, that's what what it, uh, is holding me back, is that uh, I'm working on trying to get as many copies out as I can, because of it, I hope and pray that it does influence some people. You have a background as a veteran of uh, U.S. Navy. You were married for 38 years, 12 children. That's amazing in itself. And, of course, devout and serious about your faith. Thank you for sharing your story today on your book, Mary, Mother of God. Paul, where does where does the listener get a copy of your book? Well, they can go to my website. I have a website of my own, and uh, I will be given a, a discount to people who write to me and say they're interested, but it's also in Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, and it's uh, also printed overseas in Germany and in the U.K. Excellent. Uh, they can do a search under your name, Paul C., initial, Reddington, R-E-D-D-I-N-G-T-O-N, and locate you online and also keep in touch in case there's another book sequel that follows up for Children's Read. And yes. also your website. The website is Paul C. Reddington, author of Mary, Mother of God. Excellent, sir. Thank you for sharing your story and visiting with us today. Well, Jay, thank you so much for the call. That's very kind of you. Honored, sir, for Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book today is titled Geniuses, and our author who joins me from Florida is Neil W. Flansreich. How are you? Great to visit with you. We have visited uh, before about your book, but it's been a while, and uh, I wanted to catch up and find out a little more about how it's going and also share with my new audience about your story. Your book, Geniuses, deals with a couple of uh, unusual ideas. Where did they come from, and how did this book get written? Well, uh, 
I got in, interested in writing because I was telling, making up stories for my sons when they were little, and as they got older, we would read books together, and they got me into reading the Harry Potter books. I wanted to have something in common with them to talk about, and they really loved those books, so I read them all, and we talked about it. And, you know, I saw this group of heroes and villains that had special powers. And then as I looked around in popular culture, I saw that it's all around us. You know, if you watch, whether it's television or movies, there are vampires with good ones and bad ones with special powers. There are X-Men, mutants with special powers. There are people like Superman and Batman. And, and I thought, if I'm going to write a story, another book, uh, what kind of superheroes or supervillains would I want? And I decided to pick people where uh, their super uh, quality was intelligence, because I thought the, the characteristic that is most distinctive, that really distinguishes us from all the other animals, is the intelligence of humanity. And what would happen if there were heroes and villains who had not just high IQs and what well, we ordinarily use the word genius, if a, I think it's arbitrarily normal to set at about 100. And there's a bell-shaped curve, and most of us fall pretty close to that middle. But, you know, there are people who are 130, 140, 150. They think of themselves as geniuses. What if there were geniuses that had IQs of over a thousand, more than ten times normal. Mm. Uh, what could they do? And what if they had other special mental powers like telepathy, so they could not only communicate mind to mind, but if they could control other people's minds, read other people's minds, or create memories or erase memories in people, and and if they had the intelligence to be super creative and solve problems. And you had good ones and bad ones. Because one of the themes I wanted to make was high intelligence by itself. That's, it's not enough. It's not everything. It's not a, even maybe the most important thing. Uh, it doesn't assure good common sense, good judgment, and certainly doesn't assure virtue or ethics. There are a lot of very smart people who have done a lot of bad things in the world. So... I, I I wanted to show villains who are, even though they're very smart, they're bad, and in, in my case, the villains, these high IQ villains, who I call geniuses with a capital G, want to dominate everybody, control everyone, dominate the world. They're basically supporting dictatorial kind of governments. And the good geniuses, those are also happen to be smart people who have good, are virtuous and uh, try to use uh, respect and treat everyone, including ordinary people who don't have these high IQs, with respect and treat them well and protect them against domination by the bad geniuses. And that creates a conflict, the good geniuses versus the bad ones, that I use to I have a little fun with history. I use that to explain almost all the wars that have been plagued mankind since the beginning of time when uh, you know the Greeks were fighting against, I'm sorry the Persians were fighting against the first democracies Athens it was a very big wars well I imagine that to be the uh, evil geniuses trying to uh, behind the the uh, Persian government 
trying to dominate the world and good geniuses behind the Athenian democracy. And then the same thing again, all the way up to modern times in World War II, that the evil geniuses were behind Hitler and Stalin, and the good geniuses were behind our allies. And so I, I, uh, this book also is of interest to people who like ec- interesting explanations of history, because I have a lot of those in, as well. The, of course, it has. it's like, in many ways, a sci-fi thriller, because I'm using this whole concept of intelligence and what they, uh, how they come up with genius technology and how they use their minds has elements of science fiction as well. Is it so, uh, present, present tense or future tense? I'm guessing because it's no, sci-fi, it's, it's future tense. It, go on. How, are you, how would you guess? Yeah, I, I would guess it's future tense, but perhaps I'm wrong. No, it, uh, well, actually, I, uh, it's interesting how I use time. The, the novel starts with a preface which goes back to King Arthur's day. There's a battle uh, between uh, one of the good geniuses is killed by an evil genius. And, you know, King Arthur's little Camelot, his idyllic place where everybody was treated equally, is defeated by evil geniuses. So that same battle went back that far. And at the last, while he lays dying, this genius who is just been killed by a bad one. His name is Sir Reginald Reynolds, uh, and he has just been killed by an evil genius, but he, he's been more mortally wounded, and he calls for uh, out to help, for help to one of the other geniuses, who happens to be the wizard genius named Merlin that everybody remembers from King Arthur's tale of Knights of the Round Table. Mm-hmm. And Merlin arrives, and he says, you know, I know I'm dying, but can you tell me, look into the future and tell me whether justice will be done? Will will I ever get my family ever get revenge against this evil person or evil genius who just did me in? And Merlin looks into the future and he says, I see the future and I'm going to tell it to you. That's when the preface ends. So the reader doesn't hear it. But the next scene is modern times. And uh-huh. there's a family of Reynolds, a similar golden hair, and it turns out there are geniuses living in modern times and trying to defend the world against evil geniuses who are trying to, again, have caused problems in Eastern Europe and, and terrorism and financial chaos. And, uh, and in a way, it's acting out the, pro- the prophecy that Merlin gives. We don't hear it, but uh, I refer to it as a double R prophecy because everyone in the Reynolds family also has first names that begin with R. So the modern hero is uh, Roger Reynolds, and so it's a double R prophecy. And actually, I'm going to write a series of books with because prophecy didn't just predict the battle in today's world, but it predicts another one and others that'll come later. So anyway, uh, it is a it, oh, the rest of the book takes place in in uh, today at you, the yes, modern times. You either have a very vivid imagination, or you're reading a lot of newspapers. Well, I'm afraid that I do use what's in the newspapers. I have uh, financial market crises, I, or and people, the G- evil geniuses trying to foment them so they can gain more power. I have plane hijackings and and planned terrorist attacks, and I even have, you know, young, you know, uh, juvenile delinquents attacking schools with weapons. 
and all prompted by these evil geniuses, but it does come right out of the newspaper. You talk about one of your main characters, who is Jason Phillips, who stood on a grassy rise that overlooked the athletic field that served as the site for the Laurel Glen High School Fair. Laurel Glen is located in uh, Washington, or in, in near Maryland, in Maryland somewhere. Is this a, a an actual location, or is this one that's no, also part a, of your imagination? No, it's a fictional city. Fictional city. It's, it's supposed to be a suburb where there's a private high school. Why? I mean, not only does it happen to be the location of the family of one of the important Western geniuses, the heroic geniuses who are trying to defend the world, and his daughter goes to a high school in in that town, Laurel Glen, but also it's very near Washington, D.C., and into her high school class, if she's a junior and as a, a transfer student comes into her school as a senior who is from one of these Eastern European countries. She quickly, they have a kind of recognition signal. She knows he's also a super genius, but the parents are very suspicious because people, geniuses from that part of the world tend to be among those who want to dominate and have caused a lot of friction. And there's been this generational uh, battle going on and they're worried why would he show up well one of the reasons he shows up in the washington dc area is not only to bother the daughter of this powerful western genius but also because he can influence our government in washington it's very close to the seat of government and if he can discourage it create foment a certain amount of political uh interest to deter the U.S. government from intervening when various countries in the world are being aggressive and attacking their neighbors and permitting those evil countries and evil geniuses to get stronger and stronger. So he wants to use his mental power control. Uh, powers to control con- congressmen or people there so they will not act appropriately. So that's why that setting made some sense it uh, does. because it's near Washington, D.C. Neil, as you wrote this, were you uh, thinking or keeping in mind that this might be an, a, a novel or a, a fictional work that would appeal to younger adults, or is this one that's kind of across the board? You've got over 400 pages, so I don't think a really young audience might uh, might adapt to it i think you're exactly right what i was aiming at i was kind of aiming at my sons who are now in their 20s so call it a young adult market but i think it would appeal to adults not to little children it's definitely not a children's book it would appeal to adults of all ages and as i say people who are interested in superheroes kind of movies or or sci-fi movies interesting spins on history uh, and uh, and generally, a it's. I want to make clear that even though I have this nice construct, this unusual world of uh, super geniuses, villains, and heroes, it's also a. Uh, it's a fun read. It's entertaining. It's uh, the suspenseful. There's a lot of action. There's romance, both at the teenager level and adult level, and. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of action scenes. I had in mind that maybe one day this movie would be, this book would be made into either a movie or a television series. Mm-hmm. And it's very visual. You'll see how these geniuses can use telekinesis, moving objects around or even uh, levitating, moving themselves. It's like flying, and they have battles in the air, the good ones against the bad. I have very dramatic scenes. Uh, and uh, also a lot of adventures. At one point, there, the this genius family's daughter, 
who's one of the the young heroine, is uh, attacked by an older genius, and her mind she's put into a coma. She's uh, on the verge of dying, and her parents cannot help her. She's too far gone for that. And the only place they can think to, to get help is a a group of disembodied brains. These brains were preserved from ancient geniuses, super geniuses, who were very powerful, And but, the, but they lived like over a thousand years ago. When they died, their brains were preserved. And there's a bunch of them, about two dozen of them, preserved in a, a cavern deep below the Andes Mountains. So he goes there and he has to overcome. He takes his wife and his, his uh, daughter, who's in a coma, and he carries her through caverns and under subterranean rivers and meeting all kinds of obstacles, having to answer riddles and puzzles at every point because he has to prove he's smart enough. They're not, they only, this group of disembodied brains will only help those they consider worthy. So, and he overcomes all those challenges, gets to them, and I won't tell what, whether they are able to help her or not. I want to leave some suspense. But there's all these amazing visual uh, scenes. It's, this is a dynamic, fun movie. I mainly wanted it to be a good read. In, so, including, you've got a major event that happens uh, in London, over the London Eye, which is the huge, uh, I call, call it a... Um, uh, one of those things. What do they call those things? The London Eye Carousel. Has a, thank, carousel. Thank, thank you. And yes. The uh, this is the location where the final climatic battle takes place between the lead good hero, super genius, and who uh, unexpected surprise person who turns out to be the evil genius, the evil who's genius. his main opponent, and. They fight it out at night in a moonlit sky over this illuminated, gigantic carousel. And it's, again, a super visual scene. And that's the scene that I use to take the front cover of the book. I've it's seen that. based on that. Very, very powerful cover. Uh, Geniuses is the name of the book. Uh, Neil, has your imagination always been so livid and so uh, so broad? broad uh, well, you know, you know, I'm a, a businessman, and I try to be creative in my business, and I've always tried to do things that, like drawing or making up stories for my children, because I think the more creative, the more ways we can stimulate being creative, it makes us creative in everything we do. We can all be creative. So I, I like to think that I'm a, a creative person with a good imagination, and I think a lot of good ideas and practical ideas come from people with good imaginations. They certainly do. Uh, Neil, where can my listeners get a copy of your book? My book is can be ordered, whether in hard or soft copy, or digitally downloaded, either on Amazon.com or on uh, BarnesandNoble.com or any other online uh, bookseller. And do you have a website yet, Neil? I do. I don't have the uh, website at the moment they give you. I'm sorry. That's okay. I've located it here in my notes. It's www.thebookongeniuses.wordpress.com. I will just spell your name for my listeners, and they can do a search online and locate you as well. Neil is spelled N-E-I-L, middle initial W, last name Flansreich, F-L-A-N-Z. R-A-I-C-H, Flansreich, and uh, they can find you and also find a copy of this book, Geniuses. Thank you for sharing your story with me today, sir. You're very welcome, Jay. Thank you. Honored to visit with you. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. 
Homeschooling? Have questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled The Gospel of Mark, Eternity and Readiness, a journal for a layman. And our author who joins me from, I believe it's Pennsylvania, is George Andrew. Welcome, George, to the program. Thank, thank you so much, uh, Jay, and, and, and I'm, I'm happy to be here. Pleasure to visit with you. You have a varied background, including the financial markets. Uh, this is something that is a personal passion of yours to study Scripture and to get yep. a better understanding. The book of Mark, why did it appeal to you? What was the focus there that drew you in? Uh, oh, that's a very complicated question, uh, Jay. Uh, a simple question, but a very complicated answer. And the... The, the, the situation is is that Mark is the first gospel, just speaking sort of factually, uh, first one written. It is the simplest. It is the most straightforward. In a, in a way, it's the easiest to understand. Um, if you go through some of the other gospels, for example, I'm, I'm currently working on the Gospel of John. John is much denser, much more, um, in a way, literary, where, where Mark is very, very straightforward. And as I say in the book, uh, I call it almost like pencil steel, tempered. Uh, very uh, kind of almost brief uh, little vignettes uh, of the life of Jesus. Um, we don't really know, if I may say, who Mark was, but uh, we do know that uh, Mark uh, picked up the oral tradition and uh, put it into and fully inspired uh, into into words. And I, I look at Mark as, as, as I say in the book, as Jesus' sermon about his inspiration. And, of course, Jesus' inspiration is God, and it is a remarkable uh, and very short, only 16 chapters uh, of, uh, of, of, of message. Because of his style of writing, many have uh, referred to Mark as a gospel that perhaps was targeted toward the Roman uh, populace, a little more straightforward to the point, uh, militant, not militant, but, but uh, precise and, and concise mm-hmm. in, its, in its approach. Yeah, I concur with that 100 percent. And whether the audience was, you know, Romans or whether it was um, just, I, I would say it because it's so simple. It, it, it is, it is, it is the least difficult to grasp. Uh, and it starts off with a bang, and it ends with a uh, what's called a later added, kind of like a postlude, uh, later added chapter. But in between chapter one and chapter fifteen, uh, you move through various stages of Jesus's life. Uh, and it's, it's it's very easy to grasp, Jay. It's not it's not it's not difficult on the surface, mm-hmm. sort of literary. 
Paul talked about um, three ways that he tried to communicate uh, the message, and three three groups of people that uh, got the message in, in that sense. First, there were the people that got the literal message of the gospel. Uh, and then there was a second group that uh, got the message of gospel but saw something more behind it. And then there was a third group that uh, he he delivered the message to and wanted to get the message out to. Uh, it was, was people who got the literal message, saw there was more behind it, and then also wanted to live their lives according to uh, the deeper meaning. I call it the deeper well that many, many are, I think, hungering for, thirsting for, and wanting to drop into, and just don't really have a vehicle for this. For me, it, it happened almost, oh, what shall I say, um, against my will. Uh, if you read my book, you'll understand that I come from a background. I'm a Roman Catholic. Uh, my father was a Unitarian uh, from the old country. And I, I just couldn't, after a period of time, I couldn't, I couldn't stay in the Roman Catholic Church, and so I dropped out and went through my own uh, agnosticism and went through my own atheism. Uh, and in the years in that time, I, I was what, <laughs> I hate to say this, it's such a cliche. Now, I was a searcher, and I kept looking, and I looked at various ways, uh, both that are what I would say reason-based, philosophy-based, religious, or even other metaphysical things. And in the end, what I started experiencing later in life, uh, after many more experiences and many more events, was that um, there is more here than I ever imagined. And using all of those tools, uh, I was able to address my wife's um, uh, two major medical episodes in a much more profound and much more human way than I ever have been. Your style of writing is more narrative in its approach. It's not like a typical commentary. You no. have 361 pages, but it's. Uh, how would you describe your style or, or your approach? Great question. Um, I originally started this as a blog. It was just me almost writing for my own sake to try to uh, uh, make sense of what was going on around me. Why, my wife's first illness was, was, was almost a... Uh, a life-ending experience for her and for me. And so my approach was just very much word of mouth, like uh, almost stream of consciousness, if you will. And I, I just started writing what I knew and uh, after 40 years of, of thinking and, and, and experiencing. And then in the, in the process of, of getting sort of, hey, what am I doing here? Um, I began to dig deeper. I began to go into the work of Mark and what I was realizing was that I was saying this in a very everyday, just the way we're talking right here. And that was, I think, mm -hmm. the realization is that you can communicate with people using everyday words, but talk about these very hard words, you know, like the kingdom of God. But if you can figure out what they're pointing to and what it's getting after, you can, you can actually deliver that, if you will, to people who are uh, with you and who are interacting with you in a way that, works. When you so it is kind of simple narrative, but at the same time, I wanted to make sure that if I got it, and my wife read it, who is also uh, Jewish, if she got it, then I know that many other people can get what I'm trying to get at. And the underlying message, of course, is the gospel story, but what is the uh, significance of the style and approach you've used? What do you want the everyday reader to take away from this? Yes. I, first, what I got from it was that the, the gospel's can 
when you work with them, they can heal you, um, and that they can bring about a humanization like never before, um, so that you can be a better uh, father, a better uh, a better spouse. You know, uh, you can be better in all of your all of your life. So the communication that I want people to get is is that you know don't be you know, don't, don't be put off by, by those words that are in there, but just think about them. Um, spend a minute and, and see where you go. Now, what I'm going to say is going to sound very maybe funny or, or odd. I think it takes time to mature as, a, as an individual. A 25-year-old versus a 55 or a 65, we hope, is slightly more wise and slightly more mature. True. And in that sense, you have a lifetime of experiences and a lifetime of knowledge uh, some you can put to use, and some you want to don't want to put to use. But you want to, when you open up that Gospel of Mark, you can actually dive into it and say, you know, I've been here. I, I've had hard times. I've I've experienced resurrection. I've experienced things that in my life are asynchronous, that are unusual. Now, what what does that mean? Why is this happening? What? But not in that sense of why is this happening to me. As much as what what's going on? How come? And I think that's the idea of this of this whole book. George, did you journal to uh, uh, get your foundational work together, or how did this come about? Well, I've been journaling through my whole life. I started writing uh, a journal when I was 15, and on and off have been working. um, And I actually went to a journaling workshop in my my mid-30s, uh, and it escapes me this minute uh, what the name of of the outfit was, but that helped me. I think the idea of writing down your thoughts, um, and, and it helps to use something like Mark or some other book uh, as a, a vehicle or as a guide, helps to clear the glass, helps to clear the internal mirror so that you can actually see a reflection there and um, notice what's, what, what is there. So that the, the process of journaling for me did just that. It, it, it cleaned up cleaned up that internal mirror so that when I looked there, I saw something, you know, not not so messy, but something that it was actually, you know, ever, what I like to say is that there was ever, I saw everlasting possibility in the midst of a life of choice and demand. You've mentioned this is a, uh, I guess, a culmination of uh, maybe 40 years of, of study and uh, reflection. Mm-hmm. How long did it take to actually put this book into print, The Gospel of Mark, Eternity and Readiness? Golly, you know, in a, in, a, in a sense, it didn't take long at all, and it felt like, as I say in the book many times, uh, at, at the end, at the very end, uh, there are moments when I, I wrote very easily, and I guess it's true for all writers, there's moments when things pop and you're really flowing. And then there's other times when you sit down and say, you know, I've got to write something here, because you feel um, that there's, you know, something impelling, something coming from outside of you, and there's something compelling, in the sense that I wanted to get it done. Overall, I started writing uh, this book in the middle of 08, and I finished in the beginning of 2013, so just under five years, um, you know, four years uh, plus. Uh, and that was, um, you know, when I, when I finished it, somewhere towards the three-quarters, you know, seven-eighths of the way through, I said to myself, you know, I think I've got a book here with no intention in the beginning of, of ever doing anything like this. Uh, you use the term uh, WD-40 in uh, describing your work. How, <laughs> explain how that, how the, how that uh, uh, applies to the listener. Well, I think the, um, the, the reason I like that is, is that a lot of those words that we, 
read about, you know, uh, in the, in the Gospel of Mark, and I use Kingdom of God because he uses it so so much, um, you, you, is seem impenetrable when you first, uh, you know, kind of, oh, what does that mean, Kingdom of God? But if you just take a minute, very much like WD-40 loosens up a bolt that's tight, or loosens up or makes things slide a little bit more, just um, just imagining that we have, it, and, and without being, you know, too, uh, I think I think we diminish ourselves a great deal. And if you come to something like the Gospel of Mark with a certain aspiration that I think I understand this, a certain expectation that I can get this, that's the WD WD forty that I'm talking about. Is is that it just loosens things up, and you can start going with what your thoughts are. And they say, well, you know, I I I didn't know that. Or holy cow, maybe I need to spend a little more time and do a little more research or a little reading elsewhere about this. And it let let the threads lead you a little bit forward. And I think that's you know I think that's godly inspiration. Uh, you've also described what uh, could be dis- could be or must be described as uh, something that is beyond the natural. There are some supernatural events that take place in reading scripture like the book of Mark and other other passages. Uh, there's some depth there that many people overlook. I agree, Jay. Um, we live in a world that is 15-second uh, sound bites. I was watching something on Amazon, and there was a one-point, I think, a, a less than a two-minute presentation. Our minds seem to be getting trained to have shorter attention spans, if you will. Yes. And in that sense, the the, the eternal or eternity the unchanging, the immovable, um, the uh, that which is almost inscrutable doesn't have a timeline. It, it's not a 15-second or a two-minute timeline. It, it it demands of us a detention that is a little bit longer than we may be willing to spend with it. And in that case, uh, all I can say is you start with, like, you know, when you're going to walk, you walk maybe two blocks, and then you walk four blocks after a period, and then you walk a mile maybe, and then you can maybe walk three miles, but you work up to it, and you there are challenges, but you keep working at it. And so, in that sense, the the the, the, the spiritual or the the transcendent, as I like to say, the mystery of life will open itself to you. How would you introduce this to one of my listeners in an easy to understand, approachable way, and get them to go out and buy their own personal copy of your book? Well, um, I think that's that's a great question. <clears throat> the, a friend of mine said to me, "If I read this book, what's going to happen to me?" And I think what's going to happen to me to to you is, if you're a Christian, you're going to become a deeper Christian. You're you're going to drink from a deeper well. If you're on the outskirts, or uh, if I may use this word, marginal, um, and you're not sure and you're you're unsteady, I think Mark will enable you to to stand on solid. Uh, solid ground, not on sand. For those who are what I call sensitive atheists, and this person who I was with, my friend Eric, uh, who is a sensitive atheist, I said, to you nothing's going to happen. I'm just kidding, of course. But, but if you're a sensitive atheist, you are going to be what I call more sensitive and more in tune with what's going on in not only the Gospels, if you choose to do that, but just in general in your life. So the, the invitation is, is that wherever you are, as a person, as a, uh, a, a pilgrim, this book will aid you and assist you in, 
in, in going more down the road. And there's more to come. You've got other projects in the works. I've got, I've got, uh, uh, I've begun working on John. As I said, John is a much, much more densely packed and much uh, deeper kind of a, a gospel than, than Mark is. And so I think my approach is going to be very different in this one than, uh, than in Mark. And I'm already uh, beginning to wend my way through, through John's uh, thought and John's uh, approach to Jesus. And, and certainly, if Mark was not self-referential, he, he did not show Jesus as saying, you know, I am the way, the truth, the life, and the light, where John has no problem at all in, 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 in exclaiming that and proclaiming that. You've got two different uh, approaches and two different styles and, and presentations. I look forward to uh, talk to you when that gets uh, completed. This is a, this is a fascinating, fascinating approach. Uh, 361 pages, more of a narrative than a, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, an egghead approach, if I may use that term. It's uh, ver- very approachable. I appreciate it. Thank you, George, for joining me today and sharing the background story of the Gospel of Mark, Eternity and Readiness, a Journal of a Layman. Uh, George, where can my listeners get a copy of your book? Well, they can go to my website, georgeandrewauthor.com. And uh, they we're going to be putting up blogs. We're going to be putting up, uh, as we're developing this, there's going to be more interviews, of course, and more uh, of, of my thought evolving. Uh, one of the things that I, if I may say, one of the things I missed in this book is really a fuller explication of our experience of, of, of the Almighty, of our experience of God. And I hope to do that more in John. Look forward to talking to you again. Thank you again, George, for Thank joining you. me today. For Author House and Author Talk, this is J. Douglas Barker.